the how-tos and the practical Christian life. So we're looking at things like how to handle our anger, how to deal with temptation, how to ha- kind of, what, how do we think about favoritism and hypocrisy and faith and deeds as a Christian, Christian believing, Christian acting. And today I want to look at the big question of how do we grow as Christians? How do we grow in the Christian life? If you've got a Bible and want to turn there, we're going to the book of James. Uh, let me just say a few words as introduction to this letter. It is a letter uh, written by James to a number of churches, a number of Christians in the area. Uh, it's thought to be the earliest letter or the earliest piece of work in the New Testament. This is the earliest book. And, uh, and interestingly, actually, James um, tackles head on or looks especially at the whole area of suffering and facing trials, which is interesting because the earliest book in the Old Testament that was written was the book of Job, and that also tackles and takes on this whole question of suffering and handling trials. So the earliest letters in our Old and New Testament, the earliest pieces of writing, look at this issue of how we live as people of faith in a, in a difficult world. Um, this was written during the middle of the book of Acts. So in Acts chapter 8, uh, what happens is that Stephen is the first Christian martyr. He's killed, he's killed by having rocks thrown at him. Uh, and then as a result of that, Saul, who becomes Paul, Saul then persecutes the church and the church is scattered across the world. And it's at that point that James writes his letter to these scattered believers, these Christians who've experienced the first wave of persecution for following Jesus. A good friend of the church, a leader in the church has been killed. The church is scattered and James steps up and writes a letter to encourage them. Um, there's a number of different Jameses in the New Testament, but the one that wrote this is actually, most people believe, uh, the half-brother of Jesus, so uh, the son of Mary and Joseph. You remember, Jesus was born by immaculate conception of the Virgin Mary. James is Jesus' half-brother. James grew up with Jesus, would have been around Jesus. In the Gospels, we hear of an occasion where it's made clear that James and the rest of the family think that Jesus is out of his mind because he's telling everyone that he's God. So at one point in James's life, he didn't believe that his brother was God. I mean, it is hard to believe that your brother is God, let's be honest. Uh, if my brother suddenly announced that he was God, I would have a whole list of reasons why he definitely was not God. And the very fact that James changes his mind and comes to the conclusion that Jesus is in fact God, we should worship him, surely is evidence enough that a sibling would worship another sibling and conclude, my brother is God. That never happens, does it? But it did here. And so let's look at James and see how he introduces himself. Uh, now, I don't know how about you, but when I meet people at parties, and I was at a wedding yesterday, when I meet people at weddings, I always have a few lines of introduction, and I rarely tell them the bad bits about me, like, hi, I'm Jez, you know, leader of the world, or something like that, something that's going to impress them. Yes, I'm a husband of a wife and two children who are perfect and blameless in all their ways, because I want people to think well of me. We, we introduce ourselves by telling the people the best bits about us, don't we? We do that with job descriptions. So rather than telling people that we're, we're like, I don't know, a newspaper boy, we say, I'm a media distribution expert, or something like that. Or rather than being a school in a lady we say oh, I'm a nutrition distribution consultant or something we like to make ourselves sound more interesting than we are I don't know you can judge that for yourself 
But let's look at how James introduces himself. Oh, oh, I've got to go through these. Here we go. Go back one. Let's look at how James introduced himself. Um, He says this, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. Greetings. You can tell a lot about someone from first impressions. James says, the one thing I want you to know about me before we begin is that um, I'm the brother of God. No, he doesn't do that. Oh, the one thing I want you to know about me is I'm in charge of, because he was, the only church on the planet. James led the, the church, one of the first leaders in the church in Jerusalem. But he doesn't introduce himself like that. He could have done, I would have done, but he doesn't. He says, I'm James, I'm a slave, essentially. I'm a servant of Jesus. I find that an astonishing introduction to this letter, knowing who James is. I'm, I'm a servant of my brother. No, I'm a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. He defines himself in that way, which is quite revealing. Um, he has a clear idea of who Jesus is. He calls him the Lord, uh, meaning he's in charge. He owns every part of the planet. You remember when Jesus was raised to life, he told his followers, he said, all authority has been given to me. In other words, I'm in charge. There's nothing that happens on this planet that I'm not over and in charge of. That's what Jesus' statement was. James gets that. He says, I want you to know I am a servant of the one who's in charge, the Lord. He's the Lord Jesus, which is Jesus' name, but also the word means um, the one who saves us. So I'm, I'm defining myself by saying, yeah, I'm a servant of the master, but also the one who saves us. And then he calls him Jesus Christ, which isn't Jesus' surname. Uh, many people would think, Jesus, surname Christ, you know, Martin, surname Wilkinson, Jesus, surname Christ, just different. No, it's not. The word Christ is the Greek word for Messiah, which means anointed by God. So James, from the outset, says, I want you to know that I'm a slave of the master who saves us, who's been anointed and appointed and chosen by God and is filled of the Holy Spirit of God. That's how I want to define myself, which is amazing. (laughs) And what that tells me is that Christian, right from the beginning, Christian maturity, if we're asking this question, how do we grow? The end game of Christian maturity, you could say, is that we understand our primary identity to be in relation to him. We are, we exist because of him, and we derive our meaning and identity and existence from him. That's what Christian maturity understands, I think, most of all. He, that this is our true self. This is the real you. I was talking to... Um, Amy, the other day, my wife, we, we talked from time to time, and we were having a conversation after dinner. It was a very exciting conversation, because it, it, was, it was veering towards the philosophical direction of conversation, and I love that. I get very excited when we have deep philosophical, it doesn't happen very often, and when Amy does show an interest in having a kind of conversation like that, I have to be very careful that I'm not too enthusiastic, because if I'm too enthusiastic, I scare her off. And she goes into, mm, yeah, you're annoying. Let me just do the dishes. <laughs> so I have to be very careful. But we're having this conversation, and we came to the realization that for both of us, our lives changed when, when, we under, when we aligned our behavior and our lifestyle with the true us, the thing that we really cared about, which was Jesus. 
So for Amy, I hope I'm okay to say this, I haven't asked your permission. So for Amy growing up at school, this is, could go bad. Growing up in school, she was a Christian, uh, but very few of her friends knew she was a Christian. She wasn't particularly confident about it at that point. She then left home, went to university, became more wholeheartedly Christian. And what she was doing was saying, but this is the real me. This is the thing that I really love. This, I really want to be about Jesus. And she found that when she went to visit her friends again, who hadn't known this Amy, they were confused, saying, so what's happened? Like, we thought we knew you. No, you didn't know the true me. The true me is one that loves Jesus. Uh, I'm like everyone else, I suppose. I find it hard to live consistently like that, but this is the real me. James introduced himself to us like this. For the rest of the letter, we'd do well to remember that. He is someone speaking as a mature Christian believer, saying, my identity in life and maturity comes from this fact that I define myself around not my brother, not the fact that I'm related to God, but the fact that I'm his servant. I understand who he is. That's what shows a remarkable level of humility. And humility, by the way, isn't walking around thinking less of yourself. And one, per, one writer defines humility not as thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. Hu- true humility is being more enamored with him and less enamored with self. Because the more I'm enamored with him, the more I define myself around him and his purposes and plans for my life. So I don't know how you feel when I say, let's talk about maturity, Christian maturity. Let's talk about how to grow up as Christians. The, the idea of being mature isn't particularly um, appealing to many of us. Right? I who wants to be mature? Mature is synonymous with, with boring. So let's look at exactly how James defines what maturity is. We're going to read James chapter 1, verses 1 to 8. And um, actually, I'm going to read it off the screen because I'm reading it out of the NIV, which was the translation that I first learned it in, and I love it in the NIV. You can ask me about that later. Okay. Here we go. This is what James says in verse 2 to 8. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. Because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. So James' definition of maturity isn't old and dull and boring. His definition of maturity is complete, lacking in nothing. I would like that. I would, yeah, that's a good goal to aim for. And actually, what God's agenda for our life is that, we, is that we would become more and more like Jesus. Not that we would have a beard and wear sandals all the time. Some of us are trying to do that with socks, and it never goes down too well. Now, that's the Christian image. But the, the real being conformed into the image of Jesus is that we would be mature, complete, lacking in nothing, secure like Jesus was, joyful like Jesus is, um, full of purpose and intention like Jesus is. That's what he says. If any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault and it will be given to you. But when you ask, you must believe and not doubt because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. That person should expect to receive, shouldn't expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all they do. Yikes. Let's talk about that then. So if I were to ask you the question, how do you think you grow as a Christian, uh, mature, become more like Jesus as a Christian? Or rather than asking that question, if I was to say, okay, look at your life for a moment. I'm presuming the majority of us would be Christians. Look at your life for a moment. 
and answer this question, what was it in my life that has caused me to grow a little bit as a Christian? As I look back, I recognize that I may not be as lacking in the understandings I was before as a Christian. Now that I've been a Christian a few years, what are some of the key things along my path that have helped me to grow? Just think about that. What has it been for you? Who has it been for you? Um, well, I, re- I read a book last year that, that looked at this whole area, and, and they made the case that if I was to do a straw poll like I've just done and get you to all chuck out your answers, and then we were to categorize them into different types of things, that there would really be five, they reckon, five things um, that they conveniently made to begin with the letter P. You'll see how tenuous it gets as we go on. But there'll be five categories that are involved with helping us to grow as Christians, which hopefully is, is useful for us to be aware of, certainly useful for us who are leading in the church or trying to make disciples of other people because you think, if these five things count, then let's try to make those things happen in people's lives. Let's have a look at what they are. The first one, faith catalysts, they called them. The first one is practical teaching. Um, not just hearing someone talk about the Bible, but hearing someone talk about the Bible in a way that goes, oh, that's relevant to my life. I know what to do with that. The moment I became a Christian was when someone not just told me what the Bible said, but told me how it was relevant to my life, told me that I needed to respond to that God. I had a practical edge to it. Maybe that's true for you. The second one was private disciplines. Um, Jesus says, Look, in order to pray, what I want you to do is go into your room on your own, where it's just you and God, and pray. Um, Jesus talks about the importance of the private, hidden life in the life of a Christian, and in many ways argues that you can only go as high as you can go deep in your Christian life. Again, perhaps this is true for you. There have been times in your life, times in my life, when I have got this, or I've got some kind of discipline in place. I've learned to read the Bible regularly and hear God speak to me. I've learned to pray. I've learned to fast. I've learned to, whatever it is, private disciplines. Um, To become a closet Christian, some people might say. Are you a closet Christian? Not are you someone who hides your faith, but are you someone who hides in a closet? Um, Not with clothes, but with the Lord. Anyway, okay, private disciplines. Um, Third one, personal ministry starts to get tenuous now. Um, when you found an area in your life where your gifts um, were used for the kingdom of God, whether in the workplace, in the family life, or in the church, that excelled your growth, caused you to grow a little bit more. Um, when someone said, can you um, lead this life group, and you took that on and you taught people, you suddenly found yourself coming alive with a sense of, I can do this. You know, when you brought a contribution on a Sunday, it caused you to have a little bit of faith and courage and fear, and that cocktail is good enough to make you, oh, I grew when I did that. I had some ministry action. Fourthly, this is very tame, providential relationships, okay? Um, Not just I met some nice Christians and they helped me, but actually there was that person, and when they got alongside me, things changed. God seemed to bring that person into my life at just the right moment. Um, That's why we bang on about midweek life in the life of the church. Life groups, groups of 10 to 15, but also smaller groups, groups of two to three, to help us try to create an environment where we can form some providential relationships. And and fifthly, pivotal circumstances. Moments in your life where your faith was in the balance. 
something happened and you made that decision. Do I run away from God? Do I stick with God and press on? There were moments, weren't there? If I was to do that straw poll, I wonder how many of you, can you identify, do some of those five things bear true for you in your life? I'm looking for some nods or some shakings of the head. Okay, a couple of people. Good, Matt, I'll talk to you. Let's just go. You and me, everyone else, don't worry. It's just for him. Okay. <laughs> now, what James says is that, okay, so those five things might be interesting. And in, all, in, in various cocktails and concoctions, God uses those five things to help you grow as a Christian. But here's the good news. <laughs> here's the good news from James 1, verses 1 to 8. You ready? Here's the good news. The key to all of those things, the key, the thing that really makes them make a difference in your life is this wonderful word, trials, endurance, perseverance, Oh man, so you think, how do I grow in the Christian life? I know, I will read my Bible every day. Yeah, that's helpful. I will go to every conference I can, and I will grow, and someone will pray for me, and I will become like Iron Man. That guy on the poster there, I will become a super Christian. That's what, I'll go to a conference. That's how I grow, and kind of, but not really. I know how I'll grow. I'll, I'll serve the church, and I will put out chairs every week. We need you. We will put out chairs every week. Great, very good to do. That's not going to help you grow as much as you might think it will. Valuable. No, no, no. What's going to help you grow is trials, tough stuff, moments in your life where you have to dig in and endure Moments in your life where you think, oh, I just want this to be over. Those moments are the moments that cause you, enable you to grow most in your Christian life. Thanks a lot, James. I wish I had a different answer. I wish it was different from that. I'd rather have the conference option. I'd rather just pay 10 quid, go hear some Christian speaker preach, and then have them pray. I'd rather have that option. James says, no, what you need, church, is trials what you need is trials. There's that old proverb, isn't there? I don't think it's a Bible proverb. It's probably not that reliable. But the old proverb that says that calm seas don't make for a skillful sailor. Calm seas don't make for a skillful sailor. I love it when um, Krish Kandai was preaching on video a few weeks ago, and, and he talked about a time where his wife came to him and said, hey, I think we should adopt and foster some kids. And his, his reply was, that doesn't sound like God's plan for my life. <laughs> that doesn't sound like God's plan for my life. Uh, I have a plan for my life, and I, I think the Lord wants to test me with the trial of riches and health and wealth. I feel like, God, if you want to give me a trial, give me that one. Oh, instead, let's try something else. Um, now, I have, a, I have a toolbox at home, and I'm just getting into doing some DIY and trying to make benches and chairs and stuff like that. Um, if you were to look at my toolbox, the one tool that gets used more than anything else is the hammer. My rationale is, if it can't be done with a hammer, it's probably not worth doing. <laughs> whack that, scrape that, get that out. The, a hammer is a versatile tool. Turn it upside down, you can I don't know, do all kinds of things with hammers. If you get the hooky bit, you can use it as a screwdriver. Do all kinds of things with hammers. That's the tool that gets used the most in my toolkit. Now, God has a toolkit of things that he uses to help you grow as a Christian. You know the tool that's used more often than anything else? Trials, difficulty, hard ache, heartache, hardship, um, I think it was C.S. Lewis who used the image of a house and said that when you become a Christian, you invite God into your house. And you say to the Lord, do whatever you like. 
which is a great idea because I love you, Lord. Do whatever you like. Before long, he starts moving the furniture of your life, which is okay. He's maybe got better fashion sense. I don't know. But before long, he starts knocking down a wall here and there and uh, adding an extra wing here or there. And it becomes painful and uncomfortable because we get molded by God. And, we, and C.S. Lewis says, that, see, the thing is, you had visions of being a bungalow, but the Lord wants you to be a mansion, which is a nice image, nice idea. God has a plan for your life that's different from your plan for your life. And God's way of getting you to his end game for your life is going to be different from your way of getting you there. I'll win the lottery. That'll be my trial. It's like, no, you won't. You'll, your kids will rebel when they're teenagers, and that's going to be a, a more valuable way of you. I don't like that one. I'd rather have the lottery one. Okay, I'll tell you what. You can have the re- unexpected redundancy trial. I don't want that one. Again, can I change and choose a different one? Um, and if we're honest, most of us, we... We want to run away from that kind of stuff. Perseverance does not come naturally to us. It doesn't come naturally in the society that we live in either. Um, a couple of years ago, we did, this, we did this personality test as some leaders in the church here. And there were different categorizations of personality. One of them began with the letter S. That letter meant stable, steady, secure. It's a good personality trait to have. We did this test among about 15 people in the church here, and I was one of those people. The test results came back that said that I was the only one in the room that had nothing stable, steady, or secure about me and my life, which was a source of great amusement to everyone in the room. But I sat there thinking, what? Oh my goodness, I've got a real blind spot here. And it helped me because I realized my natural inclination is to want to change things a lot. Some of you know that. You're infuriated by me. Like, the chairs are different every week we turn up. Last week was brioche. Next week is donuts. What is going on? I infuriate some of you. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. It's just, I was born that way. Um, but what I learned was that my natural disposition is to run and to change. God says you need a stick. You need to persevere. You need to endure. Doesn't come naturally to me. Doesn't come naturally to many of us. Doesn't come naturally to some of you I know. Endurance is the forgotten friend that God uses to change us. Let's just have a look at um, some of the things that God does. So this is what James says, consider it pure joy. In other words, reason it like this. Think about it this way. Add it to this account. When you face trials of many kinds, because you know, you know, okay, what you're going through is not joyful. It's not happy, but if you consider it joyful, if you consider it joy, you need to do that because you need to know. Your emotions aren't going to want to go there, so you're going to need to use your reason and go, okay, I'm going to consider this good for me. I'm going to consider this worth going through because I know that God is using this for my good. And this is why whenever you face many kinds of trials, which always for me creates this image of God going, I've got many kinds of trials for you. Many kinds of trials. You think, are you a vindictive father? Do you, are you really horrible? He's like, no, no, I'm a good father. Consider it joy because you know that this is producing good stuff in your life. But I've got many kinds, all kinds of trials. There's a wide spectrum of things. Ranging from you having the the trial of standing up for your faith as a teenager to you having the trial of ill health, ongoing pain, early redundancy, all kinds of trials. I've got many kinds of trials. And you get through one, well done. I've got another one just for you, son, daughter. Lucky you. Again, I'd have the lottery trial any day, but this is what he chooses. 
But endurance is the forgotten friend. But this is what the Bible says about it. Um, Keep your head in all situations. Paul says to his protege, Timothy, uh, endure hardship, do the work of evangelist, and discharge all the duties of ministry. Hebrews 12, 6, endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as his children. For what children are not disciplined by their father? The Bible says if you experience hardship, that's evidence that God loves you. <laughs> How does that work? But it says, no, because you're his son, he's able to teach you, train you, mold you, make you into the image of his son. He can do that to you because you're his son, you're his daughter. If he wasn't treating you that way, you'd question whether or not you're really a son. That's what Hebrew says. And then this one in Romans 5. We also suffer, we also glory in our sufferings. That sounds a bit like consider it joy. We glory in our sufferings. Now, Paul is saying that, right? Paul is not immune or unfamiliar with suffering. Uh, he had rocks thrown at him for being a Christian. He was nearly killed several times. He was shipwrecked several times. He was often without a place to stay and rest his head. He was often going without food, often with, often with people in the church saying unkind things about him and having his reputation slurred. He knew what various kinds of trials meant, and he said, we glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance, character, and character hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. The phrase that's often used is that Rome wasn't built in a day. And what that means is anything that's worth having in life doesn't happen easily. Um, we were at a wedding yesterday, as I said, and um, as we look, as I was considering marriage, we realized that um, lifelong marriages where a couple remain in love with one another even into old age that doesn't happen by accident it doesn't happen without many trials it doesn't happen without much heartache but when we see it it's a beautiful thing to behold um, interestingly frederick nietzsche the famous atheist in the last century he saw this he said this the essential thing in heaven and earth is that there should be a long obedience in the same direction, thereby results and has always resulted in the long run something which made life worth living. Frederick Nietzsche says it. What's needed is a long obedience in the same direction. Keep going in that direction. Don't change course no matter what comes because when you endure, James says when you endure, you'll be mature, complete, lacking in nothing. And that's what we want. Um, Don Smith, who, who started the church in Eastbourne that's um, given birth to us, he was, he was known to often use the image of an acorn underneath a paving slab. And he would say of the church, we're an acorn under a paving slab. It's going to be hard. It's going to be long. We're going to be here for a while, but we're not going away. And you know who wins? Always the acorn. Over time, in the right conditions, an acorn will always push through, penetrate, break concrete until life, because life finds a way, to quote Jurassic Park, life finds a way, I shouldn't have done that. <laughs> An acorn against the paving slab, I've lost you, there we go. Um, see, our instant age means that we, we find it hard to stick. We've got Google, so we can find the answers to anything we want. Why are you doing this to me, God? I can't Google that. Can't you just fix this? You said you love me. You said you'd sort this out. You haven't done. Why not? Google? No, nothing. What do we do? We endure. 
we persevere. Because we know, James says, that the perseverance, the testing of our faith, produces perseverance. And perseverance, when it's run its course, will make you mature, complete, lacking in nothing. I want that. But James makes it clear it's not just cold endurance that's needed. He says um, this, if any of you lacks wisdom, in in other words, if any of you don't really understand what God's doing, it's okay. It's okay. Because you should ask God. (laughs) And God gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. See, there, there are some, some of us from different cultures and backgrounds that might think, well, God is sovereign, holy, I can endure, because I, I, you know, I don't need to question him. I'll just endure, I'll just knuckle down, and I'll just get on with life. I won't ask him too much, because I don't want to complain against what God's doing. I'll just knuckle down and get on with it. And, but there are some of us, like I said, who are more, more prone to be like, I'm not going to endure, I want to know the answer right now. James says you need both, actually. You need to be able to endure, and you need to be or feel the freedom to ask, ask, ask. Give me wisdom. Give me some understanding. I don't know. I don't know what you're doing. My pastor doesn't even know, and hey, he's supposed to. What do I do? Help me, help me, help me. You know that, that permission that James gives us? That's one of my favorite prayers in, in the Bible. That's a prayer I pray most days. Um, Riley, would you clean your teeth? No, I don't want to. Oh, give me wisdom, God. How on earth am I going to get him to clean his teeth again? Like, we do this every day, son, twice a day. Clean your teeth. I don't want to. Give me, give me wisdom, Lord, not to, not to hit him. Help me or something or, or whatever it might be for you. I, I don't hit my child like that. I, I say silly things, as I say. Now, I'm making, making light of this, but I know this isn't a light subject. We're talking about trials. We're talking about hardship. We're talking about the need to endure and persevere. That's not easy. Not easy. When James says you can ask, ask God. And actually, when you ask, don't doubt that he'll give. In other words, don't have one foot on the shore and one foot on the boat because that's never going to go well. You need to decide. You're going to doubt that God can do it or are you going to jump wholesale and go, God, I believe you. Please, I'll trust you. Doubt looks to rob you of any kind of faith. What you need to do is decide, am I on the boat or am I on the shore? If I'm on the boat, I'll go straight on and go, God, please help. Okay, I need you. Give me wisdom, wisdom, wisdom. I'll trust you. I don't understand. It is painful. It, is, it has been going on a long time, this God. What are you doing? Why do I not get the answers I seem to need and want and desire? You say you love me. What's going on? You can do that on the boat because you can trust God with those kinds of prayers. What's more difficult is when we're still on the shore going, I don't, I don't really know if God's good. I don't really know if God's for me. Um, we need to decide. We need to ask God in faith, please give me. Um, as I said, doubt looks to rob us of faith, rob us of joy. Now let's just jump back to the beginning as I, as I conclude this morning. That first verse that we looked at, James said, I'm a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. And in identifying himself like that, I think gives us a massive clue as to how it is we can consider it pure joy and persevere and keep asking. Gives us a massive clue. Because he defines himself, again, he defines himself around the Lord Jesus Christ. 
he is the one that I trust. He's the one that I look to. He's Lord over everything. He's Jesus, my personal Savior, and he's Christ. He's full of the Holy Spirit and able to fill me and empower me as well. 1 Peter 5 verse 7 says this, Cast all your burdens onto him because he cares for you. He's not an unfeeling God. And Jesus, his name means Savior. And then if I just turn back one page from the beginning of James to Hebrews 12, we find our word endurance again, used in a different way. And I'll, I'll read this to wrap up and conclude. Hebrews 12, verse 1. Therefore, since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, since there have been so many good Christians who've gone before us, since there have been so many people who've built church for so long, since there have been so many people who've really tried and trusted God through all kinds of hardship and heartache, therefore, since we're surrounded by those kinds of people, let's, let's lay aside everything, that every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run, here's the word, with endurance, the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross. We're being called to do something that Jesus has done. You need to run in with endurance. How, how do I do that? Why should I do that? Because Jesus has endured as well. He is not immune to feeling how you're feeling. He was tempted in every way that you've been tempted. He suffered in every way that you have suffered. That's the God of Christianity. So different from any other God on the shelf. You've never seen Buddha dying on behalf of his people. You've never seen Muhammad taking a bullet for one of his own. You've seen it in Jesus all the time. It's what he does. He's there in the midst of your pain and in your suffering. For the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of God. So if you want to grow in the Christian life, yeah, we need to we need to get private disciplines in place. We need to sit under some practical teaching that's going to help us. We need to get some good friendships to help us grow. We need to wait for those circumstances that are going to propel us. Yeah, we, we do need those things. But what we need is to endure. The way we endure is by fixing our eyes on Him. Him. Not the preacher. Not the band. Not one another. We fix our eyes on Him. He's endured. He is not immune to your pain. He's the one who enables us to endure. And it's as a result of that that we can consider it joy because you know that these trials have not been sent to you by an unfeeling, uncaring God. The waves that are rocking your boat can become friends rather than foes because you understand they're making me, better sa they're making me a better sailor. These trials, they're making me more like Jesus. These trials eventually are bringing me closer to God. Right now, I feel very far away, but I can consider it joy because they're bringing me I know they will. I know they will. And friends, all of our experiences are different. All I can say is from Scripture and from experience, this is true. I've had times in my life where I've felt for years like God is just distant from me. I just find it really hard to... I'll be honest with you, when we started leading the, the church here, I thought that was going to be a really fun, exciting time. I'm now a pastor. I get to preach the Bible 
most weeks, how exciting. The first year and a half, two years, probably the hardest on my spiritual life that I've ever experienced. I wanted to run from God most days. I found it hard to pray most often. There's nagging feelings at the back of my mind all the time. I feel so different now. I can't relate to that guy because well, I can relate, but I don't experience that anymore. Why? Because that trial's gone. There'll be others. But now I'm more confident than ever that Jesus loves you, that he is Lord over all, and that he can and does enable us to endure through trials for our good and his glory. Let me pray, and we'll finish by worshiping him with a song. Lord Jesus, the master and ruler, and yet the one who loves us, and the one who's full of the Holy Spirit, please help us to grow in the Christian life. Please help us to endure through trials and difficulty. I pray, Lord, that your body, the people in this room, would be a remarkable, um, remarkable presence, have a remarkable presence of encouragement to enable us to endure that we would look to you, but also receive from you through the support, kindness, love, and prayer of one another. We love you. We're for you. We, want, we get our identity from you. Please help us. Amen.